Welcome everyone to the third episode of season four of the Northern Spin podcast brought to you in association with FI Real Estate Management. So hello everybody, I'm Michael Taylor, lifelong journalist, occasional politico, and the editor of the Business Desk in the Northwest. And here's the cheeky chappy from Chorley, the banter king of Kent, my co-presenter Chris McGuire, who's never happier than when he's slamming village cricket bowlers into the boundaries of Lancashire. How did how was that for getting the parlance right? Because yeah, I'm good. not a cricket person. Yeah, we are, yeah, really, it's boundaries, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You don't slam. You don't slam you don't. village cricket bowlers. But do, uh, no. do, you, do you knock it out of the park, or is that baseball? Um, yeah, you can do that, but uh, you're not really a cricket man, and it shines through. But thanks for setting me up there, because uh, yeah, after last week's uh, another, another century. No, sadly not. I got out oh. for five, but I got out to a is that bad? Se- yeah, very poor. I got out to a 73 year old veteran bowler called Graham Sharples, who's a quality wow. bowler. Um, he plays for a, a team called Withnall Fold, proving as ever that cricket is a cruel mistress. But it's the reason we love sport for one week the hero, the next week the zero. So I'm a journalist. I'm the executive editor of Business Club and Tech Blast. I keep an eye on the tech scene and host lots of events. Well, we've got lots to get through this week in uh, all sorts of political news and northern news. As I keep saying, what we've got to offer, Chris, is insight, insight, insight. We're going to give you some insights from our own worlds of journalism and explain a little bit about how journalism and commentary works. And in the cultural bit at the end, I want to reflect on two people who've sadly died this week, who've had a profound contribution to my own love of music and literature, that being Andy Rourke, formerly of the Smiths, and the author Martin Amis. There's been plenty of post-election Northern political announcements to get through as well. Almost one a day in the last week from Andy Burnham. We've had the G7 summit in Japan, which has been overshadowed a little by the war in Ukraine, of course, and the dysfunction at the heart of the UK government. So, Chris, after you, your candid honesty about your small C conservatism last week, I think we owe it to our listeners this week to ask what on earth is happening to our Tory party? Well, funny thing is, I was talking to Mrs. M and she listens to the podcast as she always does very loyally when she cleans the toilets. That's her routine. And she said... I think Michael might be right. You're more of a lowercase L Labour supporter these days than a lowercase C Conservative. I was shocked by that. I'm not sure she's exactly right, um, but I'm going to challenge you today because all's not well in your beloved Labour Party. There's something wrong in Keir Starmer's team, and Andy Burnham highlighted it this week. So we're going to talk about their fractious relationship. You'll deny it, of course. We're also going to talk about an extraordinary intervention by THG's founder, Matthew Molden, who has taken aim at the Financial Times. Almost unprecedented. Yeah, well, it's a little bit off the political patch, but it's fascinating and interesting. I think we can offer something to say about that. So as we begin season four of Northern Spin, I just want to say once again that we couldn't do it without our friends at What Media. We've got Charlie in the hot seat today, who's producing our podcast. And obviously and sturdily by his side, leading the charge is our producer, Ellis. They are the kings of video content creation. They turn our weekly ramblings each week into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. They make us feel like a real part of the team, and hopefully that comes out in the final result. And on that note, we're going to go to our first interval. FI Real Estate Management is not just your traditional property company. Founded in 1982 and managing assets totaling more than $1 billion, FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on going on the journey with their tenants. FI Real Estate Management, the property company with personality, just like us, Michael. Indeed, Chris. So we've got some exciting plans for season four of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management to sponsor the show and reach a growing audience, then please get in touch with Chris or I or our friends at What Media. So what we got? Well, we're in the middle of a heat wave in Manchester, and yet you're rubbing your hands with glee at the mess of the Conservative government. I want to put you on the spot first and talk about something very close to your heart, which is Labour. Now, why has Keir Starmer got no friends? Andy Burnham says Labour colleagues in Labour, in London rather, should, and I quote, leave him alone after hinting at a lack of support for his projects in Greater Manchester. Meanwhile, Oliver Dowden dubbed Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner the Holly and Phil of politics when standing in at PMQs last week. So you'll have to just explain to me, um, who are Holly and Phil? Yeah, you always try and pretend that you're not down with the kids. Um, Phil is the former presenter now of a daytime TV programme. Um, incidentally, if we were... If we were yeah, it's Holly, Holly and Phil, and Philip Schofield, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, which and one of us would be, out? Which and one I of never, us? I never watch daytime TV because I'm always at work. 
Which one of us will be Holly and which one of us will be Phil? I'm definitely not Phil. <laughs> definitely <laughs> not. Okay. I'm getting the word. Anyway. So. Okay. Um, quick background on the Burnham and Starmer row. So Burnham was interviewed on Times Radio about the Manchester Baccalaureate, which we've spoken about on a couple of pods recently. Now, Burnham is a very experienced, very savvy politician. He's aware of the impact of his very incendiary comments and what they would do to the Labour Party. Um, he claimed that Labour Party was briefing against him. He demanded some support from Labour HQ and he bemoaned the actions of those, and I quote again, in their 20s and 30s who think they know it all. He claimed every time he announces something positive as a mayor, a negative Westminster briefing machine somehow kicks into gear. Here's a quote from uh, your mate Andy Burnham, who completed Manchester's 10K yesterday. You were there. And he said, I'm building a powerful positive positive agenda for Greater Manchester to have the old ways of Westminster trying to cut across it with their negative briefing and their insecurity. I don't know what purpose they think it served. Now, Starmer tried to play down talk of a rift in an interview that he did with the Bolton News. Didn't say a great deal, but he basically made out that they weren't the uh, sworn enemies. What's your take on this, Michael? Well, given how prolific Andy Burnham has been in the last week with all sorts of different announcements, yes, about the Manchester Baccalaureate, also about Manchester's digital blueprint strategy. Um, he's meeting with lots of other different people, including, uh, and he ran the Manchester 10K on Sunday, as you mentioned. He hosted a meeting last week with Singapore's Minister for Health, Onki Hyong. He has a meeting with Mark Drayford, the First Minister of Wales, and out of all of that, it must drive some people demented that once again, all of that activity, all of those announcements, all of that hard work for the people of Greater Manchester, doing it with Labour values, yeah, somehow it ends up at the end of the week being framed as Andy versus Westminster again. Now, let's, let's be honest. It's inevitable that a powerful and popular politician in a city or a country or indeed a kingdom of the north, yeah. of which he is the king, will clash with the centre occasionally. I think he's got real pulling power. And I think it would be really wise of Labour to actually use the opportunity to say more of that. This is an example of Labour in government, in action, achieving amazing things. And yet somehow they don't. Keir Starmer came to Manchester to launch his five mission speech. I thought, frankly, he snubbed Andy. He, made it, he had him sat there in the front row, along with other um, people from the Labour front bench, like Wes Streeting, Jonathan Reynolds, Lisa Nandy, and uh, and Rachel Reeves. And yet, at the end of it, he'd got no mention whatsoever. And I think that was a great mistake on Starmer's part. As for the briefing, I don't know. I don't. You know, I'm not. I'm not a journalist in that Westminster bubble who gets those negative briefings. But there is as well. <clears throat> just go back historically, and Andy. Always paints himself as you know being loyal to Labour, Labour first. He was defeated by Jeremy Corbyn in the 2015 leadership election, and he served in Corbyn's cabinet. And he didn't join the real rebellion from the Labour backbenches uh, against Corbyn when they and all the frontbench people who resigned after the EU referendum. And a lot of people are still quite sore about that. That's a bit of historical context for you. I find it interesting because you look at the situation and whether or not. You like Ben Blocker-Houch in. The Conservatives have placed a lot of weight on his record in Teesside because he is a Conservative mayor in a predominantly Labour heartland in the north in the Red Wall seats. Now, if you're looking at the poster boy of devolution, it is Andy Burnham. And Labour has spoken a lot about their desire to you know, devolve power. And you would think they would show Andy Burnham a bit more respect than they are. Um, I am not worried about the fact that Keir Starmer and Andy Burnham probably don't um, meet up for drinks. I mean, you know, Andy's a Everton fan and Keir Starmer <coughs> is an Arsenal fan, now runners up in the Premier League. Um, what I have a problem with is if this was to prevent them working together, I don't think it will at the moment. And I think they've still got a long journey to go before they win power. Given the Tories' dire performance in the local election, I think a lot of people have woken up to the reality that unless Starmer does something really bad with this Ming vase, he is the next Prime Minister. So I think you're going to see a lot more of these type of stories where his personal relationships with other people are going to come to the fore. Um, but the fact is, it's not just Andy Burnham that Starmer doesn't get on with. I was listening to PMQs. I mentioned it at the start. Oliver Dowden, I just thought I did, did a reasonable job. And Angela Rayner deputised for Sunak uh, and Starmer. Dowden described Starmer and Rayner as the Holly and Phil of politics in reference to the fallout between this morning's presenter, Holly Willoughby, and Philip Schofield. Philip Schofield has seemingly fallen on his sword or the sword's been impaled into him. I'm not sure which. 
what I did think actually, I think if this was a rehearsal for the, um, you know, a standoff between like the deputy leaders, I thought Angela Rayner's performance was really poor at PMQs. I mean, she came up with these really long winded questions uh, and I think she lost, I think she lost the room, so to speak. Um, does it matter to you, Michael, as a, as a tried and tested Labour supporter, that Starmer hasn't got many friends? I think it's more important that Starmer is in a position to mould the Labour Party in his in his image and have the party ready for a general election and to serve in government. And if he has to break a few eggs in the course of doing that, then I think it will be a price worth paying strategically. It's not about me being a cheerleader for the Labour Party. I'm trying to kind of understand the, the, the different tectonic plates that are moving around on that. Um, I don't... I, think, I hear what you're saying about Angela's performance. I, presumably it was the first one where she was up against Oliver Dowden. I think she quite enjoyed the rhythm of the combat that she had with Dominic Raab. And quite often she'd come off quite well in those. I think she properly landed some killer blows, particularly um, around the bullying issues. And as a trade unionist who stood up for people who've been bullied in the workplace, she did really well on those. I think she just needs to find her way. You know, maybe if, you know. I didn't see it, Chris. I'll take yeah. I'll take your word for it. I'll take you uh, as a, as a non-tribal political commentator. I'll take your word on that one. That she'll probably just take a step back and think, right? Maybe I need to think a bit differently about how I go after Dowden. And if her if her answers were long-winded, it seems to strike that um, that she was provided with lines she wasn't comfortable with. Because when they're her lines and she owns them, she's devastating. Yeah, it yeah. was. I just and thought to myself, "Where's the, where's the, um, you know, where's the big punch?" Yeah, and there yeah. wasn't one. Well, she'll, she'll, she'll get around to it. Um, as for her, her not being friends with Keir Starr, I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. I don't think you've got any evidence. I don't think Oliver Dowden's got any evidence. They're different, you know. He's a he's a lawyer from London, and she used to be a care worker from Stockport. Um, they, we all know about their different backgrounds, but all the information, all the conversations I've had with senior people in the Labour Party and around Angela, none of them suggest a rift of anything like the scale that's been hinted at there. Can I just say as well? I think Angela Rayner is a real asset to the Labour Party because as Keir Starmer frequently says, yeah, because about she's, their differences, because she's real, because she's earthy, because you know she was a teenage mum, because of her background, and she's proud of it and she owns it, and yeah. and. The problem the Conservative Party have got is there's too many people, you know, from the same cloth. And we talk about this Westminster bubble a lot. She is a real asset. But but I also think that, um, you know, that that's something to be mindful of. Yeah, that's something to be mindful of. You know, is she a prime minister in waiting? Probably not. But then again, Starmer's not a prime minister yet either. Um, I want to talk about Starmer again. This will sound a bit like the Starmer show. He's like entered a couple of big issues, um, big issues this week and last week. So we're recording this on Monday. He's done a big speech about the NHS, which I know we want to talk about. Um, I thought his intervention on housing last week was really telling. So there are a few issues where Labour clearly aren't saying a great deal. I've said that Labour are talking a lot, but they're not putting a lot of meat on the bones in terms of policy. Uh, Conservative Mayor of West Midlands, Andy Street, has been very vocal about the mess of housing and planning policy. He's done a piece with The Times today, um, talking about the danger of the Conservatives not addressing the issue of housing. Starmer gave a speech to the British Chamber of Commerce last week in which he promised to take on planning reform, bringing back local housing targets. And his quote was, backing builders, not the blockers. Maybe he's blacking, maybe, maybe, maybe he's backing the you know, Ben Houchin, blocker Ben Houchin. Now, given Labour's uh, levelling up minister, um, their um, shadow levelling up minister, Lisa Nandy, opposed Greenbelt development in her own constituency at Wigan, I wonder whether or not Labour are really serious about tackling housing or whether or not this is just more soundbite politics. Not at all. I think they're hugely serious about it. I think it could give such an industrial lift to the country as well, providing jobs in the construction and building industry. There is real demand for, for more housing, and yet there's more resistance for it. I think it's a really clear issue that distinguishes between Labour and the Tories. If they have it as one of their national, if they can embed that into their national missions of renewal for the country to give people opportunity, I think it's a real uh, defining policy for Labour to say that we're going to be the party of the builders. I think it's it's absolutely right. Let's be honest, Chris, the Tories can't claim take claim to take the moral ground when it comes to housing. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Conservatives... Scrapping mandatory targets was 
was a, a ridiculous sop to the um, NIMBYs in the shires. Well, well, I listened to an interview that Chipping Barnet MP Theresa Villiers did today. Um, she was obviously the person who, uh, you know, fought the fight to uh, stop mandatory house building targets. I think the Conservatives have got themselves in a real pickle over housing. I think there's another another divide within the Conservative Party. You've got Simon Seven Weeks Clark in the northeast saying we have to build more houses for young people, and then you've got the likes of Theresa Villiers saying we don't want to build on the green belt now. The Tories won't do anything in the run-up to the next general election that would annoy their core Conservative vote in the shires, especially in the South, because they know they're almost certainly going to lose the red wall seats. I actually think, strange though it is, that Labour have got more chance of shaking up the housing sector than the Tories ever can. Um, can we just talk about the NHS as well? I think it's worth touching upon that before we Definitely. move on to Brexit. I heard Keir Starmer's interview with Michelle Hussein on the Radio 4 Today programme this morning. I thought he did really well. He was really clear. If I've got one particular and, and obviously she presses him on how are you going to how are labor going to fund this and he talked about uh, changing the rules on private equity and the shift from how people who invest in businesses through uh, through private equity funds are taxed on the interest that they get rather than taxed as income so it's a much lower tax rate than you and i would pay uh, which is ridiculous but here's the thing tax policy is sometimes used in order to initiate behavior change. And this is exactly what this will do. So actually the tax take from it will change the way in which people construct private equity deals and the income that they get from it. They will find another way to save the money. And I don't think it will yield quite the same level of taxation revenue to the treasury as they maybe think it will. So they're gonna be very careful that they don't spend the same pot of money, be it non-doms, oh. CGT, private equity, whatever it, whatever the new taxes that, that will be really electorally popular, got to be really careful that they don't spend them more than once. But what is absolutely certain is the NHS urgently requires investment. And I thought Starmer did something really smart on the interview this morning where he didn't just speak about just chucking loads more money into the NHS. He actually spoke about reducing waiting times, reducing deaths, yeah, and actually putting people at the centre of it. And West Streeting, Labour's Shadow Health Minister, has been really clear about using the spare capacity in the private sector to do it. I remember when I was being selected for being a Labour candidate, I got asked about private hospitals and their role in the NHS. And I said, I'm not going to lie, I was visiting my mum in hospital the other week. She's had a hip operation in a private hospital because they had the capacity to do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say that I don't, agree with my mum having a hip replacement operation at a time when she desperately needed it. I I would like the NHS to do more of that. You you make a couple of really good points, actually. Um, and I've seen the NHS from the inside. So the, sorry, Chris, just, I, I don't mean to interrupt no. you. My, my, my point, the importance of the point that I was pressed on it is it's become a bit of a totem. It's become almost a religion for some people in the Labour Party to think that anything private, bad, anything NHS, good. I mean, at some points, they used to say that the, the, the pharmaceutical company shouldn't have a role in the NHS, which is absolute nonsense. Well, they talk about so, the same so, so it's really important that what West Streeting is doing in arguing for using the capacity of the private sector is really breaking a taboo in the Labour Party. But it also talks about, you know, whether or not you send your kids to a private school. You know, it's... it's well, I wouldn't. But no, that's different. No, no. Um, I've seen the NHS from the inside. And like I've said on a previous podcast, the staff are great, but the system's broken. Uh, I think when I went travelling back in the day, 27 years ago with uh, my now wife, um, whenever we wanted to treat ourselves, she was given $200 by a dad. And she always said, well, I've got that $200 that my dad gave me. She used to call her a staff. She spent it 50,000 times, you know, because whenever she wanted a treat, she'd refer to this. And this is what's happening with the Labour Party, with the closing the non-DOM loophole. So whenever they want to pay for something, they always say, well, we close a non-DOM loophole and that would generate X number of billions. I heard Stephen Kinnock talking today about how they would uh, pay for something. Labour cannot pay for anything at the moment because they just talk about, we'll close a non-DOM uh, loophole and it's going round and round and round. And I'm getting a bit cheesed off with it. I think 
I think what um, Keir Starmer has done well, and it resonates with me as a lowercase c conservative, is that rather than talking about the NHS in terms of numbers, talking about it in terms of people. And the other thing that came out quite loud and clear recently is uh, there was a story in my favourite newspaper at the moment, The Guardian, when they were talking about the number of hospitals that the Conservatives actually built. Now, you recall that uh, the liar, Boris Johnson, spoke about the fact that we've built 40 hospitals and this, that and the other. And Liz Truss tried to make the same point. And the stat that came out was, I think they've built two, they've started work on five or six, you know, and, and that's the problem. That is the problem. And uh, I think it's really helpful, I think, if the, if, if the Labour are going to win this election, which they will, and they win it on the back of the NHS, it won't be about, you know, saying we're going to train 20,000 extra doctors. It will be about the fact that actually we're going to reduce this waiting list from this to this yeah come on. there's some other things as well brexit has reared its head again hasn't it we, yeah we did a story on the business desk about what Stellantis, the owner of voxel uh, were very critical and said that potentially plants like ellesmere port could be under threat from ma- proper quality manufacturing jobs you know britain's got a real opportunity to be at the forefront of electrical vehicles electric vehicle production, but Brexit is putting that at risk. Yeah, I think Starmer feels a bit emboldened at the moment, partly probably because of the uh, travails of the Conservative Party and also on the back of the local election results. So he was asked a question on BBC Breakfast uh, and uh, he was asked about, you mentioned Solantis, you know, who are the parent company of Vauxhall. And he said, yeah, the UK needs a better Brexit deal. And I'm not sure he would have spoken about that as candidly as he did. I think there's an acceptance. And I know both myself and you are cut, so we both agree that that Brexit you know, isn't working. Even even supporters of Brexit seem to accept that Brexit isn't working. And I think Starmer just feels a bit more a bit more able to actually acknowledge the fact that the current Brexit deal isn't working. We need to uh, it needs some sort of renegotiation. Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm really still quite angry about Brexit. My kids are really angry about it. The opportunities that it's closed off, even though that vote was six years ago, nearly. I don't hold back from saying that Brexit has been the disaster I always said it would be. I absolutely loathe it. I loathe the ignorance it fed, the division it created, and now the economic threat that it poses to the well-being of our country. And here's the thing, Chris. I always ask Brexit voters and Tories repeatedly, now that we're out of the EU, what is the law that you are most looking forward to no longer having to obey? And they can never answer it. Never. Yeah. So I'm I'm asking you then, as someone who identifies as a small case, lowercase, small C conservative. It's getting smaller at the moment, I'll be honest. I know. It's not just been another bad week for the Tories, but the National Conservatives Conference that was in uh, this country last week has really shown a lot of their true colours. I think it shows real confusion on the right side of politics. One article that I read on the on the centre-right CapEx website said that the NatCons were a version of conservatism that isn't primarily concerned with the rest in the UK's particular brand of chronic underperformance, and it isn't worth having. And they said that they've got precious little to say about rules on business, which is something you mentioned last week, high taxes and Here's the thing that's the cat's out of the bag on, a money pit socialised health system. So they haven't got anything to say about actually the big challenges facing the country. They're just trying to re-prosecute again and again and again culture war woke issues and, you know, the tofu-eating guardianistas and all that rubbish that people like Braverman and Lee Anderson keep coming up with. I, th- I think that National Conservatism Conference was a, a personal low for me uh, last week because- Well, I you mean, didn't go, did you? No, I didn't go. I didn't go. I, but um, because I'm a lowercase c conservative at best, even though, like I say, even my kids are denying that now. Um, there was a there was a moment, there was a clip in there when there was some American guy saying that, yeah, I've been talking to Margaret Thatcher from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> and I thought, really? I mean, I thought I must have been listening to some sort of, uh, you know, you know, you know, some sort of out there experience. I thought David Icke was going to be on the stage. I mean, it was that, that wacky. I think there is a lurch. I think there's a lurch from the right within the Tories further to the right. I actually think most conservatives think they're a bunch of barn cakes. I really do. Um, the UK's net migration figures, you know, yeah. expected to be out on Thursday, yeah. right? Rumored to be, be, be yeah, rumored to be between seven hundred thousand and one million. Worth making a point. These are legal uh, immigration. You know, this isn't yeah. the illegal. This isn't the boats crossing the uh, crossing the channel. And that figure stands at forty five thousand. 
Um, we're talking about 800,000 legal net migrations. Suella Braveman gave a speech at the aforementioned National Conservative Conference in London last week. Uh, very, very unhelpful. Clearly a warning shot to Rishi Sunak to focus more on cutting immigration. We're going to talk about her and her motives on manoeuvres. We're also going to talk about her speeding in a minute as well. Um, I just think that we've got this um, we've got this situation where you know immigration that's one of his that's one of his five objectives. I mean, Rishi Sunak in Japan last week didn't want to talk about he doesn't want to talk about legal immigration. He wants to talk about the uh, the boats, the um, you know the sort Small of boats. You know, yeah. yeah. But but one of the issues yeah. that came out about that is that's seven hundred thousand, right? A reasonable chunk of them are going to be Ukrainian refugees. They're going to be yeah. they're going to be quite a reasonable chunk from yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, um, there's going to be talking about students, you know, who get uh, two-year visas to study yeah. in the UK as yeah. well. Our university system is bust without international That's students. the point I'm making. So people yeah. are saying, people are saying, well, you know what, 700,000, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we've got to tackle down on the families of, of overseas students. You've only got to come to Manchester and go to the universities in Manchester. Without overseas students, there wouldn't be a viable university model. No, and they bring a lot to the economy of the region. You know, they're... they're, they're, they're Good citizens who bring something. They're just the wrong colour for half those people at that NAT con conference, I'm afraid. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's move on. Let's talk about um, Swalla Braverman yeah. asking civil servants to arrange a private one-on-one -on -one speed awareness course after she was caught speeding. Have you ever been done speeding? Yeah, I've done the speed awareness course. Yeah, how did you find it? It's all right, yeah. I did, it did change my behaviour for a bit. And I do, where we live, there's speed bumps on our road and people slalom through them and, you know, we're, we're, we're quite... It's never the offence. We're quite curt and twitchy and yeah. annoyed about stuff like that. What did you do? Do you remember what speed you were doing? It was probably something like 50 and a 40. Right. Um, thing is, and, and people talk about this, it's never the offence that does you, it's the cover-up. And I'm not saying there was a cover-up, but the thing with Suella Braverman, she's got done last summer, right? And a lot of people are talking about conspiracy theories. She comes out and makes a speech at the National Conservative Conference about cutting immigration. And then six weeks, uh, sorry, six days later, the story breaks that uh, she asked civil servants to see if she could do a one-on-one -on -one course to a speed awareness course. Now, if you look at it from one side, you can understand the fact that she doesn't want the attention that if she's sitting at the back of a room with somebody with a mobile phone, that they'll take a picture of Suella Braverman sitting on a course about why she should go slow when she approaches pedestrian crossings. I think the problem is, is that it's that feeling that it's one rule for, for her and one rule for everybody else. And that's the problem the Conservative parties have got. Um, and, and, and if you compare her approach to other people, like we've mentioned him earlier, the King of the North, Andy Burnham, you know, he got done. He was done, I think, doing twice the speed limit. He just accepted him and he got a two grand fine as well. Yeah, he did. So I noticed on Sunday that Andy Burnham was trending on Twitter, which I actually spend very little time on these days. It's really dreadful, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I was hopeful that he was trending because he'd run the Manchester 10K for charity. Instead, it was because the worst people in the world were on Twitter doing a spot of whataboutery in the course of defending Suella Braverman, claiming that it was some kind of Remainer socialist plot to topple their glorious leader. But that's the important difference, and you mentioned it. Andy took the fine, took the points, didn't try to hide it. I saw him a day or two after, actually, and, and, he, and he spoke about it quite openly. You know, what an idiot I was. Um, and, and, and he took it. She's trying to wriggle out of it and get civil servants to get her to take that private course, and she's been stitched up like a kipper by whoever's leaked that, frankly. And but Sunak's that's because not she's, happy. Sunak's not happy, you can no, tell. No, Sunak was asked about this on the stage in Japan at the G7 conference. I think he said... Has anyone actually got a question about the about about the summit? And yeah. he got really, really hacked off, and he was very distinctly not backing Suella Bra Braverman. He's talking about he's going to speak to the uh, ethics advisor when he comes back to the UK, which I think he has. Um, now, when I want he to mention too great in an inquiry. Yeah, um, I want to mention a couple of things. Like we've got our loyal listeners, and they love your impressions. You've done none yet as well. But I know a few yeah. people play Northern Spin Bingo, which is made up of phrases or, or words that we mention every episode. Now, in your case, you can't go a whole episode without mentioning Succession. When that series ends, you're going to be—I don't know how you're going to be—you're going to need friends around you to support you. Um, what they achieve in life echoes through eternity. <laughs> I can imagine succession will still be part of people's lexicon for many, many years to come. I get loads of press releases about it, you know. Yeah. Business press releases, like doing a, a ready reckoner on the financial terms used in it. Well, here's another phrase that pays. One and there's that also quizzes to be done, Chris, on which member of the succession cast are you most like? 
Well, and I, I'm, I've done one for you, which I'll reveal at the next episode. I've not got Sky, so I've not watched it yet, but I've got that to look forward to. Here's another one for you, another name that we mentioned a lot, Ben Blockerhouse, and we've mentioned him already today. So is, so, that, is that on the... Um, Northern Spin Bingo. Yeah, ben Northern Spin Bingo. Ben Block Bing. Housing. Yeah, great um, house. Absolutely. Um, I don't want it. Um, I don't want to mention them every week. I generally don't. And what I find interesting about doing this podcast, because I do occasionally listen back to previous episodes, is that nobody knew, or he didn't have the same sort of name before we started highlighting him. I'm not suggesting for one second that we are like succession and we are changing people's, you know, reputations. But it's gone nuclear this week. It's gone absolutely nuclear. We've been talking about, you know, the Tees Valley Mayor and Tees work for ages, but it's probably for those new listeners and we get new listeners all yeah. the time. Just explain the background, Sue. Okay. What's been happening? So we're obviously blocked from seeing any tweets by Ben Blocker-Houchen in Tees Valley, but we did see him last week on BBC's Newsnight where the excellent journalist, Victoria Derbyshire, got properly stuck into him. Now, it's worth making the point that the Tees Works round might not have broken through, but for the exemplary reporting over a long period of time since she joined the Financial Times, the reporter Jennifer Williams, who's obviously well known in this part of the world, having previously worked at the Manchester Evening News, and also, and Jen gave due credit to um, Private Eye. It's nice when journalists give credit to other journalists. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. I don't know what you're trying to point you're trying to make there, but anyway. Anyway, so a quick recap for people not too familiar with the story. The Middlesbrough Labour MP, Andy McDonald, used parliamentary privilege to allege industrial scale corruption, quote marks, with the project, something that Ben Blocker-Houchen has always denied. The allegation relates to the transfer of millions of pounds of assets of Teesworks to private developers, Chris Musgrave, and Martin Corney, who have, of course, denied any wrongdoing. So what's happened this week? Chris, give us an update. Well, um, I, I read Jen Williams's investigation in detail. Um, she claimed that companies controlled by the developers, Corney and Musgrave, had earned at least £45 million in dividends from the project in the last three years, and the pair hadn't invested any of their own money in the site. Now, Labour smell blood. Their shadow secretary for levelling up mentioned her already. Lisa Nandy, if you got her on the uh, Northern Spin Bingo, she's called on the National Audit Office to investigate. Uh, Houchin has come out swinging as well. First, he's got involved in a public spat on Twitter with Private Eyes Richard Brooks. He did the investigation. Uh, he's done a lot of the investigations on T's work for Private Eye, and if you've not heard the podcast that they've done on the whole tease work shenanigans, you must listen to it. It's compelling. Then Ben Blockhouse did a spike interview on Newsnight with um, Victoria, with Victoria who, who I think is finding a mojo now. I think she's really taking that role at Newsnight, to, you know, and making it her own. Um, and he said that he'd written to the National Audit Office asking them to investigate. Um, so this constant problem can be nipped in the bud. Interestingly, the National Audit, um, Audit Office don't have the power to investigate, you know, unless they unless there's an exemption made. I think it's important to provide some balance because, you know, I always try, try and put both views, uh, both views forward. Leveling up Minister Deanna Davison, the Bishop Auckland MP, um, says she's seen no evidence of any corruption, while Simon Seven Weeks Clark has called on Labour to repeat the allegations Andy McDonald made without the protection of the parliamentary privilege that he was given when he stood up in Parliament. And implying that he will get sued. Now, Blacker bon um, Blocker Ben Houchen, to me, is sounding like a man under serious fire. Labour, it's in their interest, want to keep this row going for as long as possible. What do you think? Well, I don't think there's, there isn't going to be a, a National Audit Office inquiry. Hey, presto, it's been blocked by ministers. No one has explained why the developers have also made a fortune from scrap metal on the site, but don't appear to have invested anything either. Now, someone I spoke to close to all of this tells me that the next crisis facing Ben Blocker-Houchen will be Teesside Airport, which, if you remember, uh, the Tees Valley Combined Authority, of which he controls as mayor, um, took into public ownership, claiming that they'd turn it into Teesside's own airport, open up all sorts of international links, bring in investment, have a daily flight to London. And it's currently on 170,000 passengers a year. That is at least 3 million shy of break-even. Another Ben Blocker-Houchen vanity project. And on that note, let's go for a quick interval. Sue. 
So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month, I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges, and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress. Welcome back to part two of the third episode of season four of Northern Spin. And we've had another five-star review. This one is headlined, Great and Consistently Challenging. And it's from somebody whose handle is Marty Farty, which is a great name and no reference to the fact that we're full of wind. Marty wrote, well, what did he write, Michael? Great topical current affairs podcast around the North, but focused on the issues of the day. Lovely relationship and harks back to when you could argue your point and still be friends afterwards. Always makes you think and don't agree with loads, but that is the purpose of listening, to challenge yourself. Brilliant work. Keep it up. That's lovely, isn't it? Really nice, yeah. yeah really nice. It's better than the one that you read out last week. Yeah. Yeah, what the one about the you? The one that was really, yeah, really yeah. mean about you. Absolutely. No, it was mean about you. No. Okay. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, go on. Um, I'm just. I'm just glad that people listen to it. I'm not. No. Sensitive. It's to just this. about. It's just about raising awareness about this fantastic northern region that we both live in, and uh, getting people to talk about politics and taking an interest in politics. Now, come on. You, no, no, you want to. Uh, you want to slobber over a tech bro now, don't you? Come yeah, on. absolutely. Yeah. Well, the thing is, politics and te- um, politics and business are inextricably linked. And although we do mainly politics, we do touch on business as well because we're both business journalists as well. Yeah. So I want to talk about Matt Moulding, right, the CEO of THG. We've spoken about him a lot recently, and I think it's relevant because they're a massive, massive employer. He's spat with the Financial Times, and it is really, really interesting. I think we can provide some insight as two business journalists. Before we do a deep dive, Michael, you better explain the background. Okay, so in recent weeks, Matthew Moulding, the founder and chief executive of THG, an e-commerce business that sells protein products and makeup based near Manchester Airport, has used his LinkedIn blogs to take fire at various hedge funds, pundits, journalists, and analysts about THG's plummeting share price. Bear in mind, they floated on the stock market with a valuation of £5 billion. 5.4. Yeah, and it's now worth far less than a billion. So yeah. it's trading at a massive, massive discount. Now, Chris, I know you quite like his honesty, but last week, Moulding did something really extraordinary by taking aim at the FT's investigations journalist, Dan McCrum, who in his previous locker can claim the scalp of German um, payments business Wirecard, a dramatic and incredible global fraud story. McCrum wrote in the FT's excellent Alphaville column about some of the auditor's comments buried deep inside THG's lengthy annual report, which is something that I love it when journalists do things like that, noting the key questions that Ernst & Young, or EY as they're now known, had asked, particularly around the accounting treatment of THG's e-commerce engine that sits at the heart of the business called Ingenuity. I think we got the name of it wrong when we talked about it last time. Ingenuity, it's called. Now, Moulding didn't just object to the story, but the manner in which he was contacted by the journalist prior to publication and what else he thought was going on. He said, we were given two hours to respond before the FT would print. However, he then included a three-minute video summary from a Netflix film about the rise and fall of Wirecard, which he seemed to think was a big gotcha at the FT. So, Chris... You give me some insight about what you saw when you first spotted Moulding's latest LinkedIn rant. I thought of you, actually. I thought of you. And <laughs> no, seriously, because I thought to myself, um, oh, what I want to do, I want to try and give some insight in terms of as two journalists, right? In terms of, and I thought, I wonder what, you know, Michael Taylor's thinking of this blog right now, because he'll be thinking the same things that I'm thinking. So let me just paint the picture. I'll sit with my colleague, Jonathan Simcox, who's the editor of Business Cloud and Tech Glass. I'm the executive editor. And uh, we were chewing the fat and we were putting the newsletter together for Thursday. And then I got a WhatsApp message from a business contact of mine saying, Matt Moulding is on fire today. So I looked at the blog because I've not seen it. My first thought was, can we leave Thursday's newsletter with this? And then Jonathan and I talked it through. Now, the reason we wanted to leave with it for, because we knew that when we do a THG story about Matt Moulding, it always does well in terms of traffic. We know people like the stories. Now, um, 
Matt Moulding made some serious, serious allegations against the FT. So the first thing I did is email the FT for a comment, which incidentally I'm still waiting for. Um, when I was a cub reporter, I was given a piece of advice by a very sage editor. And he said to me, Chris, he said, Chris, he said, never libel a millionaire because they've got the money to sue us. So I tried to avoid libeling anybody, but I've never forgotten that piece of advice. So I, I especially am keen not to libel, you know, libel people with deep pockets. Now, clearly, neither of us, that's ourselves at Business Cloud or Business Desk, have the resources of the FT. We can't spend four months just investigating one story. So I'm really thorough about this. So as a result, the first thing I did Thursday night, I watched the Netflix film Scandal on the fall of Wirecard. And I didn't know a lot about, if I'm being honest, I didn't know a lot about Wirecard, not as much as I wanted it and should have done about the, about the FinTech. And I'm also listening to McCrum's book, uh, Money Men, about his uh, investigation into Wirecard. Now there are two issues at stake here. The first is the integrity of the FT is sacrosanct. So a negative media story can spook investors in a massive way and four share prices down not millions, but billions of pounds or euros. One of the things Moulding has been very unhappy about is something called short selling. And it's important we share this with the listeners. What this means, short selling, is that someone like a hedge fund bets on the value of a company's stock dropping so they can make a killing on the markets. Moulding is absolutely right to call this out because he makes a point that when THG floated for 5.4 billion, um, there was clearly an element of people who were betting against it, short selling, and that was hitting the share price. He thinks this is outrageous. Now, where I think Moulding is playing with fire is he's brought in the reference to Wildcard, uh, Wirecard himself. Now, McCrum clearly isn't backing down. And if you look at the, and you mentioned it in a piece that you wrote over the weekend in Business Desk, he invited Moulding to lunch for an interview. And you can imagine McCrum laughing when he's writing this. Moulding, to be fair to him, responded by saying that after the global, uh, after the global pandemic, there's not enough hand gel in the world to get me comfortable with that. I almost imagine him and his PR people around him have got a bit of a smile about that. We haven't heard the last of this one yet, but I do genuinely think, I do think it's a mistake to personalize it like Matt Moulding has done in this instance, but I welcome his honesty most of the time. Well, you mentioned the PR people sat around him. There's actually a vacancy for the director of comms of THG, a job they've actually not been able to fill for about a year now. I thought you might go for that. You'd love to do a bit of PR for a tech bro, <laughs> wouldn't you? I'd like to do some consultancy, <laughs> which I do do. Yeah, okay. Anyway, I mean, it all does sound literally, you should watch Succession because it's great for all of this drama. It does really just sound like an episode of Succession. And if this one's going to run and run, it might provide me with my uh, Sunday night entertainment. But the thing about Matt Moulding is he seems to regard any scrutiny of him as a personal attack. So he's, de he's decided to play the man and not the ball in this instance. Now, he's making the mistake that so many business people and politicians as well, to be fair, make in their dealings with journalists when they accuse them of having any other motive than this is a great story. Yeah, you said it yourself. Why would you run that story on your platform? Because people will read it. It will be popular. And that's what drives us. It's the, you know, the need to strike a, a relationship with your audience to think that you're doing the right thing. He's trying to make out that there's some kind of collusion between the Financial Times and hedge fund people and that they're manipulating the, the share price together. And it's really, really dangerous because there's no evidence. Wirecard's tried to make the same accusation and that never came to anything. So yeah, I think he'd be well advised to back off from that one. But I also think in fairness to Matt Moulding and THG, I think there is a, the FT can't assume that because they're the FT, they can do stuff and say stuff. They've got to back it up themselves. They know that. Of course they, they know do. that. And they'll have spent a lot of time investigating this as well. But what it does is it moves it up the scale as a company that people are looking at. Anyway, what else have you got for me and anything to see here? Well, I'm going to continue the journalism theme because there was a case last week which I thought was uh, very sad, actually. Carol Cadwallader, who's been ordered to pay Brexit supporter Aaron Banks legal fees. They're well over a million pounds. It's over a long-running libel case. Um, Cadwallader accused Banks in a TED Talk in a subsequent tweet about... Uh, Banks' relationship with the Russian government, he denied it, of course, claims that to claim that they were false and defamatory, and he's got the money to sue. The court, so the case went to the Court of Appeal. It was battered between a couple of courts for a while. Uh, Cadwallers has been ordered to pay 60% of Banks' legal costs. She's described it as a dark day for the freedom of the press, while Banks called it vindication and posted a photo of him in Rome eating. I think it comes back to the dangers I mentioned earlier about libeling a millionaire. I think um, Cadwallader, in my view, was incredibly brave, but also a little bit naive in equal measure. I also think it's a shot across the bowels for newspapers and people who post stuff on social media as well, which you're seeing a lot more of. What's your take? I think that's harsh, Chris. I think 
Um, I think she's been in incredibly brave. And I don't think there's any justification for saying that she's been naive on, on any of this at all. What I have been particularly disturbed about, though, is how Aaron Banks has made it so personal about Carol Cadwallader. He hasn't gone after the TED organization, which is massive. He hasn't gone after the Guardian Media Group and the Observer, who she writes for, but he seems to want to personally ruin Karen, uh, Carol Cadwallader, which is really, really disturbing. I think all of this is, is fascinating from a, a from the point of view of journalists and 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 public interest and the, the law. I'm in a complex process at the moment that I can't talk too much about with dealing what I believe to be SLAPS, and that stands for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. Basically, it's people using the law and expensive lawyers in order to burden critics with the cost of a legal defence so that they'll abandon their criticism or opposition in a way coming back to that piece of advice that you got. It's almost a misuse of the law in order to silence criticism Yeah, by, I, by, rich, by rich people. Tie you up in legal knots. No, no. And, and that is an issue, a real problem. It is. Anyway, here's one for you. North of Tyne Mayor, Jamie Driscoll, who I know that you met at the uh, Northern Powerhouse Conference, Convention of the North. Yeah. Um, was it last year or this year? No, this year. Can you believe it? this year, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know you met Jamie. Um, so in a speech in Sunderland, of all places, he pledged to end unemployment by creating thousands of green jobs and building a total transport network for the Northeast, all in support of his bid to become the mayor of the Northeast, the king of the Northeast, no yeah. less. And he's competing for the Labour nomination. And there's an assumption that Labour will win it, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, with the Police and Crime Commissioner for Northumbria, Kim McGuinness. It's been billed as a straight up right um, centre-left versus far-left fight. What do you think? Yeah, you're going you to see the local election results up in the Northeast to see that whoever wins the Labour um you know, place will win that. Um, yeah, I think this could be a battle royale. I think Driscoll, see, everyone paints him as this left-wing socialist politician. And when I spoke to him as well, he said, look, he said, that's unfair. He said, but it's it's not a cross that's, uh, you know, that he's embarrassed by. Um, I read that the RMT union boss, Mick Lynch, has backed his campaign as well. And as you mentioned, I, I interviewed Driscoll and he came across as a decent guy. Kim McGuinness is very Mick, busy. Mick Lynch isn't in the Labour Party. Uh, no, he's the uh, RMT union yeah. boss as well. So he's, but, got no, but, he's got no place really endorsing him, um, endorsing Jamie Driscoll. But, but not, critics, but critics would say, but critics would say he's to the left. You know, they would argue that. Yeah. Um, I think Kim McGuinness is. She's very busy on Twitter. I always first thing I do whenever we do, we do these uh, weekly um, podcasts, I always look and see what people have posted on Twitter. I think this could be a blockbuster. Um, I wouldn't want to put my money on who's going to win just yet, but. I think Driscoll's got a machine behind him as well. And Kim McGuinness is playing much, very much to her roots, um, northern, you know, uh, her northern roots. Um, let's talk about, uh, I've got one more to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, come on, on manoeuvres. Who yeah. else is on manoeuvres? Well, I want to mention Liz Truss. Please don't. Yeah, no. I, Do you have to? I honestly, there's, I think she was a, I think everyone would agree, she was a, Absolute shambolic prime minister. She's now flying all over the world giving speeches, most recently in Taiwan, where she wants MPs to take a stronger approach to China. I think I think if there's a job I couldn't take, it would be to be her advisor. Because if I was to say to Liz Trust, I'd say, look, Liz, you're not going to want to listen to this, but you're an embarrassment. You were terrible as a prime minister. Nobody takes you seriously. You were terrible as a foreign secretary. The Russians tied you up in knots. You're flying all over the world to earn a few coins. Um, you're not helping yourself. You're not helping the Conservative Party. But maybe this is a conspiracy theory. Maybe Keir Starmer is a friend of hers and Keir Starmer wants her to carry on doing what she's doing. No, you've been, silly, to see here. No, you've been silly now. That's, um, I think she's an idiot and I think she'd be well advised to shut up. So let's go on manoeuvres. What have we got? Well, we're going fully on manoeuvres now. Last week I mentioned um, Alex Phillips. You thought I was a bit, bit hard, actually. She uh, was involved in that very public spat with Alistair Campbell on Newsnight. I basically said that she's using this to dine out on the back of. Nothing she's done in a subsequent week has changed my view at all. She's all over on social media, still talking about this little episode with Alistair Campbell. That's why I thought she was on manoeuvres last week, and I still think she's on manoeuvres. But I want to talk about some more serious uh, political figures. We touched on uh, it earlier, Sir Ella Braveman, Home Secretary. 
I mentioned her mischief making in part one, her speech that she gave at the National Conservative Conference. She knows that the uh, you know the net immigration figures are going to come out this week and they're not great. She gave that speech. Which is on her, right? Yeah, which is she on is her. She is literally the Home Secretary. She's Home Secretary. Yeah. She's clearly, to use one of your phrases in Northern Spin Bingo, throwing some red meat <laughs> to the right of the parties. Do I say that? Did that sound like you? Do I say that? You do, yeah, do. you do. You, well, you did in the first series, red meat to the right of the party. Yeah. What's your take? Yeah, I agree with you. So who else is on manoeuvres? Gove. Gove's on manoeuvres. Gove. Gove. Yeah. Gove. See, I think Michael Gove is very clever. Uh, I wouldn't trust him if he told me it was raining without checking. He's very selective with his media appearances. You couldn't see him when the uh, local elections were a disaster for the Tories. He's been everywhere last week. Did a really interesting interview uh, with uh, Adam Fleming and Chris Mason on Five Live. He was announcing the government's landmark reforms to the private rented sector. Came across as personable. Um, he's also mischievously written to Keir Starmer, asking for his current position on the Greenbelt development, given, the, uh, given Keir Starmer's flip-flopping on the issue. Do you think he's on manoeuvres? Gove is one of those cunning plotters in politics who goes on manoeuvres the minute he wakes up in the morning and makes political calculations based on what he's going to put on his cornflakes, which <laughs> we can speculate what that might have been in yeah. the past. Um, he also spoke at that ridiculous loony NatCon conference and tried to inject a little bit of common sense. I think a lot of people interpreted his remarks as being quite sarcastic when he was saying, I'm thrilled to be here to see all the energy on the centre-right of politics. It was almost like he was sort of throwing a bit of shade over them. But he made the point though, he said, the Conservatives won't win the next election on culture wars. And that's just common sense. Yeah, yeah, true. I've got another name I want to throw at you as well. Go on. Former Chancellor George Osborne, who I met three times. He did an interview with a rival podcast, The Rested Politics. Uh, they've got a new uh, interview section called Leading. It's a really interesting interview, actually. So the thing about um, the thing about George Osborne is once a politician, always a politician. I know he's earning shed loads of money from his thousand jobs, but he is definitely getting more involved in politics as well. And I actually think he's trying to be more of the same voice. So if you remember, he had a go at... Uh, Boris Johnson, didn't he, when Boris Johnson was rumoured to be entering the fray again. I think he's definitely on manoeuvres. He just can't keep away, can he? No. I was just calculating in my head how many times I've met him. More than three, Chris. <laughs> you're anyway, train on me. And on that note, we're going to go to an interval. I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Welcome back to part three of the Northern Spin podcast, Michael. Um, we're going to talk about some really serious stuff in a second, about two people who died last week and had a profound effect and a found contribution on your love of music and literature. But I was asked, can you believe, I was asked by somebody who listens to the show to say, I love your section on people who block you. And I assumed, I assumed they meant Ben Blocker housing. Yeah, yeah. And they said no. They said the Stockport MP, oh. Nav Blocker Mishra. I don't think we can use that term because I don't think it works as well. Okay. But I said, I will ask Michael every week. I will say, Michael, okay. are you still being blocked by Nav Mishra? And he also asked me, he also said, why would he block him for? And I said, I don't think he's a Blackburn Rovers fan, so I don't think it's a football thing. I said, I'll ask Michael. Yeah, yeah I'm still blocked by him. Still blocked? Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think, what have, what have we talked about on this podcast that would have offended him? Obviously, we talked about some of the machinations in Stockport Labour. I obviously used to work for the But he's a politician, he would accept that. He would accept yeah. that, surely. Yeah. The rough um, and tumble of politics. We did, we did all the stuff about Matt Wynne becoming the independent councillor for Edgeley, which is in his constituency. There must be something uh, to it. There must yeah, be. There was, I've spoken about expensive private schools in the south of England from time to time. 25 grand a year education. You think that might be it? Might be, yeah. Anyway, 
Well, well, anyway, dear listener, I will keep flying the flag and keep asking whether or not he is unblocked. Um, yeah, let's talk about a couple of people who uh, who died last week. Uh, Andy Rourke, uh, big part of your life and also... Yeah, sure. So Andy Rourke was the bass player in The Smiths, a truly epoch-defining band on our show Music Therapy last night. Uh, me and my good friend Neil played Girlfriend in a Coma, which has just got such an incredible bass line. And it proved that, you know, The Smiths, everyone thinks Johnny and Morrissey, but actually, you know... And Andy, Andy Rourke was a huge, huge part of that as well. As of course was the drummer Mike Joyce, but Andy, Andy Rourke. And everyone just tells me what a lovely, lovely man he was. All the people I speak to in the Manchester music industry just say what a, what a great guy he was and, and an important part of the rhythm of the band. Now, Chris, I know you don't share my love, love of the Smiths, but it's clearly a very sad death at the age yeah, of 59. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, we're in our 50s. So when somebody dies in their 50s, it sort of resonates a bit more. It's interesting, like I say, I'm not a Smiths fan. I couldn't recognize or give you any song titles Girlfriend in a Coma, that was one of their songs, was it? Yeah, amazing Wow, song. that's amazing. Um, now, um, yeah, also, I want to talk about Martin Amos. I, you know, I love books. I okay. listen to him on Audible. So for a few years, Martin Amos, who's died at 73 of cancer, it's the same cancer that his friend Christopher Hitchens died, who I was also a huge, huge admirer of. Pancreatic um, cancer. Yeah. Yeah, very sad. I thought it was of the esophagus. Um, anyway, don't matter, he's... Anyway, so for a few years, Martin Amos was the visiting professor at the University of Manchester. And he, he did these fantastic visiting guest lectures. And, and I went along to them. And he used to bring along his friends, including Clive James and Ian McEwan. And he did some... And he, I met him afterwards. He was great, great company, quite, quite funny, quite intimidating, actually. And I, I will say this without fear or favour, that he really did inspire me to write when I was a much younger um, aspiring journalist and writer. And there are two reviews of my own novel published in 2015, which referenced the Amos style, which I was so pleased about. One from Martin van der Weyer of The Spectator and the other from Kevin Sampson, who's a published author. And what I will say, the one thing that, um, that I took from his lecture that he gave with Clive James, he said the most important attribute that a good novelist has to have is a good ear. I love that, a good ear. It, somebody said to me very early on, they said, Chris, you've got one mouth and two ears for a reason. And uh, I think sure I told you, you that. Yeah, well, somebody else might have told me as well. I mean, you didn't like come up with that phrase. Um, I, I didn't come right. up with it, but I think we did a plate. Okay. Uh, incidentally, incidentally, um, I think you're right. I think um, Andy Rourke may have died of pancreatic cancer. Okay. It, it's uh, sad either way. Uh, obviously, our thoughts very much, you know, with their family. Um, I want to talk about football because it's funny, actually. When the sun comes out and the sun was out at the weekend, I get all crickety. We spoke about it last week. Um, and yet there is still football going on. There is still a Premier League. Teams battling out at the bottom. No longer at the top. Um, last week, we're going to talk about playoffs and the excitement. I'm not a Sheffield Wednesday fan, but I was watching on Twitter. They overturned a four-goal deficit to beat Peterborough in the League One playoffs. So if you haven't seen the dressing room speech, you really should afterwards. Um, Darren Moore gave a wonderful speech. I mean, what you have to remember is they got beat in the first leg 4-0 yeah. and he was a subject of racist abuse. Now, mentally, if you're going into a second leg knowing that you're four goals down, you've got to get every member of your team, the staff, the players, believing you can overturn that. They got them to overturn it. They got the equaliser to go into extra time. Then they conceded a goal. Then they got a goal back to make it 5-1. Yeah. It went to penalties. But the really bit that gets the hair on the back of your head standing up was um, was Barry Bannon, one of the players, said, no, boss, yeah, you deserve the credit yeah. because you made us believe it was fantastic. You're a big fan of the, big fan of the playoffs. Not that your team ever get there. No, I mean, we've been through the playoff ringer a few times in the 80s and 90s, and we were always terrible. Um, Rovers actually did uh, take a 3-1 lead to Crystal Palace in 1989 when I was living in Australia. I was going to come back. I kind of looked into flights to come back to see us, you know, going into the first division. And then we lost 3-0 in the <laughs> second leg, which was, I mean, I don't know how you, how you get over something like that. Um, but the other playoffs at the weekend, Stockport County are in the League Two playoff final, a Greater Manchester derby with Gary Neville's Salford City. As you say, Chris, joy for the winning, despair for the losers. I think the playoffs are incredible. The intensity is off the scale. And, and But I should point out as well, though, on the Stockport-Salford thing, a friend of mine, Councillor Dave Sedgwick from Stockport, said this, Despite the fact we won, I also take great satisfaction that we beat this horrible millionaire's ego project. Let's hope they're back in the regional leagues where they belong. It, wow. Talk it, about... It, <laughs> no, but if it is 
a horrible millionaire's ego project. It's a long-term ego project because he's been doing this for a while. I remember watching Salford City play against Chorley. It was 2-2. It was at, I think it was 2-2. It was at the Victory Park, um, you know, the home of football in Chorley as well. And, and, and Salford were a ramshackle affair. Now you look at them now. What I would say is because it's Gary Neville, people love to throw a bit of, uh, you know, throw a bit of shade his way. Um, but I'm glad to see Stockport uh, to win. And well, obviously, let's be honest the... as well. Though, Stockport County may not be where they are today were it not for the support and investment of millionaire Mark Stock from Vita Properties, who's you know got a vision and a plan to take the club to uh, football uh, fans. A much have higher place. short memories. <laughs> Don't they just? Yeah. I think also more seriously, we should also mention the case of Andy Pilly, the owner of Lancashire Energy Company BES Utilities, but best known, of course, as the owner of Fleetwood Town. Last week, he was found guilty of fraud after a seven-month-long trial concluded at Preston Crown Court. The football club issued a statement to say the club will continue to operate as normal. But frankly, Chris, I don't see how it can. In a week when relegated Wigan weren't paying wages and have been dot points, Blackburn Rovers are looking for a new commercial director, and yet they've got to try to make the books balance and get more income coming in because they pay more out in wages than they do in taking in revenue making them perilously close to FFP rules. At times like this, I think football finance is absolutely on a precipice. Now, you've interviewed Andy Pilly a couple of times. What's he like? He's really interesting, actually. I interviewed him the first time, I think back in 2012. I can't remember when Fleetwood first got promoted into the league, but it was around about that time. There's a real problem here because um, you know, Andy Pilly's a bit of a wheeler and dealer. He comes across as a wheeler and dealer, you know, a bit rough and ready, um, uh, but successful. He's, he is successful. His business is an energy business called BES Utilities. The problem that Fleetwood Town Football Club have got is they're trying to distance themselves from BES Utilities. The business is based at the stadium. Okay, number one. They're the shirt sponsors, the long-term shirt sponsors. Number two, I interviewed Andy Pilly in his office. He had a picture of him on his wedding day with a picture of him with his bride taken on the pitch at Fleetwood Town. Number three, um, one of the things that struck me, and it's amazing how things you just remember, is he talks about the fact that he spent millions and millions of pounds, and he absolutely has. And given credit, Fleet was not the most glamorous location in the world, but he's invested in his local football club. Uh, he's got him into the football league you know they've had some great days down there as well and um, so he spent all this money and yet when I went in the canteen if you wanted a sachet of ketchup it was going to cost you 10p um, one other thing I'll say because I mentioned before my daughter plays a bit of football and she's played a number of games at uh, Fleetwood Town's training facility at Paulfoot Farm so you know the first team train there as well but they've got artificial pitches it's a fantastic facility it's um, it, it's not the same as the Etihad campus you know but but for Fleetwood it's it's a changer. And my concern would be that it will affect the community as well. And that would be a disappointment. For yeah. Me. But what you'd have to think though, number one is, is that sustainable without his financial support? And I'd guess, no, it isn't. And how much of the money that fleet would have been able to invest in the club to, I mean, it's good for Fleetwood. They've got precious little else going on other than fishermen's friends. And the COD Army, as they're known, their supporters, that you know, then then they don't have a massive fan base. Yeah. You know, they're competing on the file coast with Blackpool, obviously. I think they did they rose at a time when Blackpool's support was dipping because the fans were boycotting when it was uh, run by the Oyston family. Um, you've also got AFC Filed, owned by David Haythorthwaite down the road in Kirkham. Um Preston and Blackburn, not too far away as well. So I think it's it's hugely competitive. I can't see, without his support, how Fleetwood Town can be a sustainable venture at that level of football. And, and you do have to ask, quite fairly, how much of that money was made off the back of fraudulent sales practices, which of which you've now been convicted of. So well, what, else have, what else have you been up to? If he wants to come on the show, Andy Pilly, he can. Even he I think can't, he's, he's, he's probably, in custody. He's in custody at the moment. No, yeah. but when he's out, he'll still be allowed to come on the show. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I watched the Netflix film Scandal about the wild card scandal. Um, I mentioned the word scandal in twice, but the name Scandal, if you want to watch it, is S-K-A-N-D-A-L because obviously it's a German company. I went to the cinema with Mrs. M to watch a very run-of-the-mill rom-com called Love Again. Nice to watch, 7 out of 10. I also bought a new device um, called Plantar Fasciitis. It's a 
machine. And I mentioned it on a blog that I wrote recently when I turned 51. And I said that if you want to know what 51 feels like, the present I'm looking forward to getting most is this new device to deal with my plantar fasciitis, which is a condition of the heel. So for young kids out there, um, now I bet you can't beat that. You must can't, you've done nothing as exciting as that this week. Uh, probably not. No, I went to the Manchester 10K. I'm going to run it next year. It was such an incredible carnival atmosphere. So many people out running it. 25,000 people sponsored by AJ Bell. Um, finance business in Manchester. My wife's charity was supporting about a dozen people running for it, but there were huge waves of people running for all sorts of charities, large and small. Um, that was amazing. That was a great day out. Blistering heat though. Fair play to anyone who completed uh, a 10K run through that heat, particularly when on the stretch down from Old Trafford along Chester Road back into Deansgate. That looked blistering. Anyway, Film-wise, we watched Air, a film with Matt Damon, Jason Bateman, and Ben Affleck, directed by Ben Affleck. And it's about when Nike moved into basketball, because obviously they were known as a, an athletics brand. It's a great geeky business story. I think you'll like it. And, and it's fascinating about the way in which the film depicted the biggest presence in the story, which is my, obviously Michael Jordan, one of the greatest ever sports people to walk this planet. But yeah, I watched it, really enjoyed it. They don't show... Michael Jordan's face today. You've seen it? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, right, yeah, good. yeah, yeah. First, first with the news, Michael, like I am with yeah, uh, right. Business Cloud. Yeah, but I'm the one to review it. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'm also going to treat myself to a new jacket this week because I've just saved 200 quid by cancelling my membership of the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts. That's a, that's a lot of money for a so-called progressive organisation that refuses to recognise trade unions and for a London club, which I haven't been to in three years. I used to enjoy going there. It was a great base to go and base myself for a day in London between meetings, but I've just not been going to London. I can't justify it. They send me a magazine I don't read anymore. And I was really cross about their treatment of the staff mm. under their uh, new chief executive, Andy Haldane, former um, governor of the Bank of England. Mm, interesting. I, I loved it when Matthew Taylor was the chief exec. I don't know how the situation's got to this stage, but there you go. Well, maybe you'll start everybody doing it. It's not what? Well, well, maybe. Actually, I, I started one sentence and finished with another. Maybe what you've started will be followed by others and everyone will start cancelling their membership. Well, I don't know. It's a shame because, you know, it's obviously got great values, but uh, not, not at this stage. And I'm going to go and get myself a jacket. Anyway, that's it for season three of uh, episode three of season four of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management and sponsor the podcast, please get in touch with Chris or I. Nine of our most downloaded shows were from season three. So we're growing and we've got momentum, though not of that kind. <laughs> we're on Apple Podcasts, so please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow up on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One or watch us on YouTube. Hi, YouTubers. Thank you to What Media. For, spon for recording this podcast to Charlie and Ellis. Special mention as well to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name, as ever, is Michael Taylor. And my name is Happy Clappy Chris Maguire, the banter king of Kent. <laughs>